0: Hey, it's Eric Culkren, and welcome to this episode of Behind the Headlines, a weekly podcast that features the newsmakers and the news-making decisions behind the biggest stories on MLive.com. And on this episode, we talk to Chief Photojournalist Jake May.
1: All of this coronavirus outbreak uh, has been at the forefront and the purpose of why I go out and do what I do is because um, I'm willing to put myself out in, in the harm's way if needed to make sure that we tell the stories that allow us in this moment some clarity you know I think people need to um, to see what's going on and to have a better understanding when they can't see it
0: for themselves in our first episode we talked about the coronavirus pandemic and how it's been an unprecedented national crisis in this episode we talk about doing photojournalism during a pandemic How does one do photojournalism in a time of quarantine? What's it like to try and get close-up photos in a time of social distancing? And now more than ever, could photos be the way in which people make sense of the world when they're seeking that human connection? My co-host, as always, is Vice President of Content at MLive, John
2: Heiner. John, how are you, my friend? Eric, it is great to be here another week. I'm in the same place doing a lot of the same things, but uh, we've had a big week for news. There's a lot going on in the news. So we can talk about that throughout the show today. Um, but I am very pleased to tell you, Eric, that today we are in the presence of greatness. Uh, we are joined today by photographer Jake May from the Flint Journal. And uh, a lot of our listeners out there are already going to know where I'm going with this. But Jake is not only one of the best photographers in the state, he's one of the best photographers in the business. He is the two-time defending National Small Market Photographer of the Year. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his work on the Flint water crisis. And uh, he's joining us here today. And today, actually, uh, the way it started was illustrative of what life is like for a photojournalist working during crazy news times. Uh, I woke up to a message from his regional manager, Clark Hughes, saying, um, John, I know that you have plans for Jake today, but we have massive flooding in our region and uh, we need to get our news photographer out there to do some work. And I said, absolutely. Breaking news comes first. So Jake may coming off a very busy day. Uh, gracious enough to join us here on Behind the Headlines. Welcome, Jake.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely a pleasure to be here. And uh, like you said, being out there at that flood, uh, well, not just one. I mean, the whole region was flooded everywhere between Midland County. And uh, I was actually in Saginaw County myself and tracked down um, scene at the uh, intersection of Gleaner and Tittabawassee, where uh, a truck had been forced off the road by this flood um, and to be honest, uh, I looked back up in uh, our reporting um, and saw that this exact truck was where they rescued somebody from earlier in the day. Um, so I actually waded out into the water uh, about knee high to make sure to get the, uh, the best photo possible to show this intense flooding in this uh, abandoned truck.
0: So, Jake, let's start there. Can you walk sure. us through that whole process, right? Because before we started, you were lo- you said to me, today was cool, but this was the most dicey thing I did. And so can you walk us through maybe what the process of going, okay, I see the story. I see the shot I have to get.
1: Well, I mean, I'll tell you, um, some of it's a little bit of a feature hunt at the beginning. You know, I'm finding my way uh, up to Saginaw and I'm keeping my eyes peeled as I'm driving. Um, not just for the purpose of driving as we all need to, but also looking for literally, you know, any flood plains, things that are happening because the whole place anywhere throughout the County and a lot of these areas in mid Michigan, we're having the same struggle. So just because it's not the intersection that I was first told about, doesn't mean that's not part of the story. And so for me, um, as I'm driving up, I connected with ISIS, who's a, a reporter out of the Saginaw area who uh, connected me with information on a number of intersections uh, that showed that the road commission had put out that showed where not to go, which is exactly where I would go.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> good, good journalist, Jake. Good journalist.
1: So, uh, so you know, I, I I used that to my advantage and initially tried to find my way out to M52. And in that process, uh, uh was on a lot of back roads that I wasn't familiar with. I don't know, just a photo here and photo there, but I didn't feel like I really had anything to tell the story yet. And so um, I was making my way to Titabawasi road. And in that process, in the distance, I saw that the entire road was flooded to the point where there's still flowing, like heavily flowing water. So I parked, I walked uh, with my, I had my camera with 35 millimeter lens on it, and then a bag with my 70 to 200 millimeter lens. Um, and just the shirt on my back, essentially, and then walked up and found that the water um, clearly had uh, one car that was kind of parked. It was at the beginning of a part, uh, I would say, a driveway, um, clearly to try to stay out of the water's way. And in the distance, I saw a little glimmer of red between some trees and uh, put on my longer lens and found that there was a truck. Uh, and in that, knew that I needed to get in there. <laughs> So I didn't, didn't really hesitate. I made sure to, um, and this is, this is where, you know uh, you just gotta be cautious and you do it the right way. But you, you know, uh, I went in step-by-step taking photo here and there till like, as I saw like a couple down trees um, that were still rooted, but they, they had broken. And so I made a picture of that and I'm moving closer to this truck, but it's getting deeper and eventually it becomes knee high, deep water. Um, and so, you know, every step you take, you have to be careful with, um, you can't, um, you know, I wasn't going to go a bunch further than that, but luckily I didn't have to because the truck was to my right. Um, and there was like a drop off and some water rolling. So, you know, I was being very careful not to nudge myself in the wrong direction, uh, by any means, but at the same time, um, you know, I knew I had to get that photo in order to, um, show readers the true impact of of what this does to um, our everyday lives, you know, to people.
2: One thing that was in the story was they had to send in a dive team to get a guy out of danger from these raging floodwaters in a farm area. Now, to the uninitiated, I worked for 18 years in Bay County, which is up by Saginaw, is this is a very, very set sea level, basically. And when it rains, there's nowhere for the water to go. But uh, it's probably one of the few places in Michigan where a dive team is going to be saving someone from a farm field. Wow!
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So amazing pictures and uh, obviously podcast photo gallery is not going to um, perform very well. But I encourage people to get go. <laughs> no, no,
0: but but I will put it in the show notes so they can see what we're talking about. So
2: that's awesome! Fantastic work this morning, Jake. And I had a chuckle when it was like seven forty-five. When when your boss said, "Um, could we borrow Jake for breaking news, which the answer
1: is always yes, of course. And I should rewind for a second and just say, if you're talking about the whole day, yeah, it's getting the call first thing as you wake up in the morning and saying, hey, you know, there's flooding in Saginaw. How quick can you get here? You know, or um, it even goes to like more of a normalcy uh, for me throughout my years in Flint. But, you know, it'll be uh, there'll be a fatal shooting uh, on the north side and i have to get there and so it's just uh, you know i'll get a five i used to get 5 a.m phone calls there's definitely just uh i don't know an urgency to it it's funny because there was a day two weeks ago that clark had called me uh and it was something like seven something in the morning and i was like where do you need me and he's like oh sorry that was a butt dial i was like oh man that's not good <laughs> i was waking up anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's like sorry about that and i was like it's fine at least you know i answer and i'm ready
2: <laughs> but you you live in flint and you're a resident of Flint. You have been for some time. How long have you been living in Flint, Jake?
1: Uh, seven and a half years.
2: Your Pulitzer Prize uh, final uh, award was for the work you did for the Flint water crisis, which is just spectacular, of course. And it was a real due honor for that. But um, you know, one thing, Eric, that I, I want you to know about Jake is of all the people I work with, I mean, this guy wears his heart on his sleeve, his passion not for journalism, but for people and you look through Jake's portfolio and you're going to see that comes through he finds a way and spends the time to get up close to people so he can tell their stories the way they need to be told it's it's certainly the antithesis of drive by journalism with Jake he he really puts in the effort
0: that's awesome and and Jake let's let's talk about that for a second because i find at least the way in which i'm consuming the internet at large right now, I'm looking for people. And I'm wondering your perspective as a photojournalist, when you're telling stories now, um, do you feel that difference that we're, we're looking for that human connection? I mean, we're always looking for it when we're telling a story and we can't be connected to it. But now more than ever, it almost feels like your art and your expertise is almost more valuable at this moment because we want that connection that we can't actually get when we're in a lockdown.
1: Absolutely. I I mean, it's something I do every day. And it's... it's uh... It's so vital to have a human connection and interaction. It's how we've built our society. Something that's been on my mind amidst all of this coronavirus outbreak uh, has been at the forefront and the purpose of why I go out and do what I do is because um, I'm willing to put myself out in into harm's way if needed to make sure that we tell the stories that allow us in this moment some some clarity. You know, I think people need to um, to see what's going on and to have a better understanding when they can't see it for themselves. And now mm-hmm. more than ever, photographs and videos do that. Looking at uh, something as simple as the idea of a barbershop. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I've been over to the Wasso barbershop a number of times now um, in the process of Carl Mankley reopening um, and the um, the flood of support he's had um, from some and, and others not so much, you know, and just what that looks like in the, in the scale of how Michigan reopens and him going against Whitmer's order in the process of this and almost kind of made a name for himself. Um, you know, I was just there yesterday with, uh, when he was there with the, uh, Shelly Luther, who's the Texas hairstylist, uh, you know, who had a claim to fame for doing the same in her home state. Um, so it's, and I think people want to be able to, um, to talk about what's going on and to have some reflection to that purpose. Alternatively, um, one of my most, I'd say projects I'm most proud to have, uh, helped lead or, or be even just to be a part of was, uh, we did a, uh, statewide portrait series, uh, where we worked as a team photographers across MLive, uh, to use all of our opportunities in Jackson and Muskegon and Grand Rapids, Flint, Saginaw, Kalamazoo—you name it—we uh, put everyone to the test to take photos of people in their in their homes through their windows or doors, and to uh, do short interviews and to actually see how people are coping, how people are feeling, what this is like. Because, um, and the thing I've repeated over and over again, even amidst that project, but as I go through every day of why we're doing. The coverage we're doing to me it's uh you know this is the first time in history in in our history most recent i know it's not like we've had the spanish flu we've had other uh go abouts with stuff like this but in our anyone who's alive today the first time in our history we are all doing something to help better humanity but we've never felt more alone mm-hmm. that to me is mind-boggling and The fact that we do feel that way, it's our job as journalists, I think, to help connect those dots and to help make sure that people understand they're not alone. They're not doing this by themselves. You know, normally with that feeling when you're doing something good for society or good for humanity, you usually get a high five or a hug like you have a feeling of like, you know, accomplishment. And I think there's so many people that just don't have that reciprocity. Maybe that's the wrong word, but I'm just the, the idea of like, what comes back your way for doing something good. And it shouldn't have, you you shouldn't expect anything, but at the same time, I don't know, it just, I think we all are are getting a little bit of the cabin fever uh, this, Mm. this far into the game and and it's, it's hard to cope with. And uh, you know, I think it's our job to help tell stories that allow people to feel, to to see that other people are feeling the same way that people see that uh, they're not alone. So Jake, in
2: addition to telling the larger story, there's just logistical. I'm just really fascinated by how journalists are doing their work. Now, I'm a journalist and I'm, I'm doing it in you know sweatpants and blue jeans from my couch, but because I don't need to be out. And a lot of our reporters can work remotely. They can interview people by video or by phone, but there seems to be a certain um, requirement to taking are making photographs that you have to actually be present where the, where the action is. So today you were wading through, you know, knee deep water. Um, and yesterday you were at a barbershop in Owasso during coronavirus, when so many people are uh, working from home and have to stay home and keep socially distance, just logistically, practically speaking, how do you do journalism?
1: Well, on the literal practical side of things in the idea of, just the the necessities and basics have changed right for what we need to have on us and what we're doing. Um, You know, here's one of four masks that I have on rotation uh, right now that I wear a face mask uh, to make sure not only to keep myself safe, but to keep others safe um, from any spread. Uh, I have Clorox wipes and uh, hand sanitizer in the uh, passenger seat and cup holders of my car. uh, And actually every time I get in or out of my car, regardless, I use that both times in and out so that no matter what, I'm not bringing something out or in, uh, as I go. Um, same thing goes with cleaning your hammer equipment when you come home and leaving it at the door as well as your trousers. <laughs> as weird as that is. Um, but like you gotta, you gotta just in case, you know, push it down to the basement and you'll handle it in the laundry. Then you take a shower, you know, um, you don't take any chances. And I think that, uh, you know, if my water bill is $10 higher, but I'm still alive, I'm okay with that. Uh, and I think uh, outside of just that immediate logistics of like the things I use, I'm still vigilant about making sure that we're out there and telling stories, but I'm also thinking differently about how do you take photos of even just as simple as a portrait, you know, a portrait of a person now may be taken through glass. Mm-hmm. Um, now it might be taken uh, at a further distance, and be, we're using much different lensing because, you know, we're not, while getting up close, uh, you know, so many people would be so used to using a 35 millimeter lens and going right in there. That's my normal approach. Is oh. like, <laughs> I, of
2: course it is, Jake.
1: <laughs> like, I mean, real talk, like if, if before coronavirus, you know, there's a Robert, I think it's Robert Kappa, said something around the lines of if you, if you can't uh, feel their breath, you're not close enough or something Mm. like that. You know what I mean? Not the case right now.
2: Not Um, the case right now. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The idea is you got to get close. Right. But we can't right now. So I think that ultimately like you're using zoom lenses or you're using things that, and, and it's funny because like we have all these tool tools in our kit normally. Um, but it's challenging us in ways of thinking about, um, their safety too. I'm sure everyone feels it at the grocery store from time to time too, but, uh, trying to get through one aisle and someone's not paying attention or not Giving you the distance that you need for six feet, right? But the same thing can happen at an event at any event that I've been to, where the people start to group up, and then all of a sudden you gotta be weary of where you're at, so you're not surrounded in a way that uh, you know you're trying to do everything by the book, and uh, it's not always going to happen, um, but you do your best to make sure that um, you're safe. And I'm curious,
2: Jake, are the subjects of your photos Given that you know we're now heading into like three months of this, are they acting any different when they see a photographer or working journalist on the scene?
1: Well, uh, I mean, real talk. Uh, one woman that I photographed shortly after the truck flooding today uh, was uh, checking out the flooding, and I took a picture or two of her. And I was getting her name, and I swear to you, she ran up and hugged me, and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" And I was like, "Well, you know what?" She she literally said, "Hey, I'm sorry." I just, we don't see people anymore. And, and then her husband called and he's like, Oh, see now I'm probably in trouble right. because right. he's yes. up in the truck and he saw me hugging." And I was like, I didn't invite it. Um, but at the same time, I think people are really tired of not being able to be themselves, uh-huh. especially the very social people. Alternatively, I mean, I see either it's one or the other, right? There are either people who are very vastly pushed back or people who have no concern for wearing a face mask and likes of what's going
2: on. So, you know, last week we had another protest at the Capitol and we've had some chaotic scenes at some of these protests and your colleagues, Jay Scott Park was in the thick of it. Um, we had our videographer, Neil Blake, another photographer, Joel Bissell, uh, had that assignment, Nicole Hester. I, I don't want to leave anyone out because there's been, I think three protests and, um, uh, the tensions run pretty high and you're no stranger to shooting chaotic situations, the protests in the Flint water crisis, the weigh-in at the Clarissa Shields fight that uh, went sideways. How do you, as a professional photographer, how do you make the images you need to make when crazy stuff's going on like that on a shoot?
1: Don't hesitate. That's the easiest way to say it. When I was a younger photographer, you kind of want to be in it, but then you don't know what you're doing. I think you just rely on your instincts. Uh, very quickly. Uh, something's, if a fight's breaking out in front of me or like people are getting arrested, I have no problem, um, getting down, getting in there and getting the photo that's needed. And then I'll back up for a second and I'll analyze the scene and I'll see what's going on around me to make sure that what other things are happening. Um, you know, there was a, um, there was a protest that happened October of 2018. It was like right before Whitmer, Whitmer was there. And it was like an early morning walk for those, for the um, fight for fifteen people, um, and they were coming down Dort Highway, across Dort Highway over to McDonald's in the morning at like six a.m. It was like five forty when I got there, and they were just making their way over, but a pickup truck uh, actually uh, crashed into the protesters as they walked across the road, and eight people were hospitalized, and it got really messy really fast, um, and in that process. Uh, I was literally walking next to a man with stilts like twice my size. And then I was just taking a photo here or there. And I just started taking, I walked briskly because I didn't want to run. I would never run uh, amidst a breaking news scene. I don't want to startle anybody, let alone the cops. It's not something that anyone should do.
2: Um, I've never thought of that, Jake. And I've been in journalism 38 years, but that's pretty smart.
1: I think if you walk, I mean, think about it as speed walking, right? Mm And you don't want, you don't want to startle anybody. Um, And so as I made my way in, I literally, first person I saw was the lieutenant chief. and He was already on the ground uh, on all fours helping somebody with somebody holding their head. And then I looked around and I, I, literally, I got his photo and then I looked to my left and I saw three more people on the ground. So I started photographing. You can never control chaos. You can only control the decisions you make. And so it's important to go with your gut and get what you're going to get. You're going to miss photos straight up. You're not going to be able to do a 360 and take photos <laughs> the entire time. You just have to be okay with that. And then, but then keep your head on a swivel at the same time. Right. I didn't stay with that uh, police officer for more than like 20 seconds or less and moved on and kept making more photos. And, um, and then, you know, the police line goes up and then it's conversations with both the people behind and in front of the line. Um, you mentioned the arrests during the water crisis uh, at uh town hall. They had held it in the church and I already saw that that um, tempers were, rising um just because they wouldn't allow people to wear hats into the church uh itself um so there were people fighting that because some have to wear hats literally for you know body temperatures and things of whatever other natures and the things they were saying people were already getting a, a, a little uh i won't say out of control but there was definitely like heated moments and i also noticed that they had like lined uh police officers throughout the Town hall at the church, and I was like, That's kind of weird. And then I noticed, you know, then we have like a 10 panel state officials, Flint mayor at the time, Karen Weaver, and a number of other people who are going to be on the stage. So I'm like, All right, let's see what goes on here. They have an open public talk, and um, people are getting ushered out if they were being too unruly, even though they had the microphone to talk and give their piece to these people, um, these officials. And so, in the process. I literally was at the front of a pew, like near the pew of where a church pew would be. And I noticed that they, as they were getting ushered out, I kind of kept my eye on where they were pulling them. And I heard somebody, a woman scream. So I, I in the middle of the church, I just got up and I ran in that moment because they're not coming after me. So I, I hustled up and um, I noticed uh, that these protesters, in over time, they're not protesting at this moment, but these residents uh were then being handcuffed. And so I started taking pictures, and I moved and I took pictures, and I noticed they were actually kind of hustling too. So that, in that moment, and they already knew who I was, and I got my camera out and everything I'm doing, I literally had to run in front of those police officers because I wanted to get their faces. (laughs) I wanted to show what's going on and take the real pictures of what's happening. I was outside the church, waiting for them to put them in the cars, talking to the husband of the woman who was arrested because I've known them for years through this process, and just trying to make sure to get videos, quotes, Photos and whatever had to happen, um, and then I actually stayed up until two or three in the morning that night uh, outside of the jail, waiting to see if they would come out. Be let out because they had uh, people who were waiting there to see if they were going to let them out uh, right away, um, and they didn't. They kept them in there for a minute, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, I would I would never call it wasted time, but I definitely think that the people who were there on that, like over time, I've gained so much. Uh, respect and trust with so many just by being present. Uh, and I think that's a huge thing that we can do um, as journalists today, as ever, you know, it's, it's a, a long lasting, the relationships you build um, are the foundation of how we can continue to tell intimate and purposeful stories in our communities.
2: Let me ask you this, Jake, how does a boy from Grand Haven and uh, shout shout to my kinfolk over there uh, in Grand Haven. The Your the works <laughs> <laughs> the shameless plug for my for my aunt, uncle, cousins over <laughs> in Grand Haven. But anyways, how does the guy from Grand Haven become so a part of the Flint
1: community?
2: And what is how does Flint speak to you?
1: Flint's my home. Uh, you know, I'm I don't I wouldn't call it a second home. I think I probably lived here longer than uh, I've lived anywhere else in my life, to be honest, in one foul swoop. You know, um, how does it how does it speak to me? Flint, Flint is so many things. Flint is tenacious. Flint is gritty. Flint is proud. Flint's strong. They're going to literally. Uh, we've been through so much, right? Uh, you go back to the 80s and when GM left. Oh. Uh, you fast forward through the 90s as uh, you know. In the late 80s, we were probably peaking at around 200, 200 to 225,000 people. Uh, you fast forward through the 90s and then there's um, the tires on cars are getting cut and crime starting to build up and blights starting to happen because people are moving. And uh, the crime rate was the next big wave of things that Flint had to deal with in the thousands up to 2012 when we were in our peak um, you know, uh, for a violent crime rate, we were the number one city on and off for years. Uh, and then right when we're starting to kind of lower that and things are looking brighter, that's when the water crisis hits, you know? Um, and then really that was switched, uh, you know, in 2014, but then it came back around and people didn't really start talking about it on the national scale till 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were there the whole time, And I think ultimately, um, and now you see what's happening here, you know, you got to, you got to, it's a constant thought, you know, like when's Flint going to get a break? Are we going to have a chance to like to rebuild and show people what we can be? Um, I think that's a a constant conversation. There's a lot of talk about Flint becoming a college town. Um, We have university of Michigan Flint. We've got uh, Ma community college. We've got Kettering university. Uh, and it's kind of becoming a new brand for the city um, and how they're rebuilding what's happening but you know um there's there's i say all of that especially knowing that we're we're a comeback kid man like we never we're never gonna let up uh I, i've seen so much strength in so many people um because they're not you know people don't want to leave this city you don't want to leave your home there's people who have literally like purchased their homes and have had them and they're well into retirement and you're telling no one wants to just like up and uproot for nothing. Mm -hmm. Uproot just to be like, okay, I guess I'm going to move to, you know, I don't need to name another Michigan city. You're all great. But, uh, you're all my
0: favorite, everybody. You're all my
1: favorite. Whatever city I'm in at that moment, you can be my favorite. That's fine. No, there's so many great cities in Michigan. So, but the idea is like you don't want to leave your home, you know? And, uh, to me, Flint, Flint's just, uh, is literally that, that powerful, you know, the people here are so kind and so warm, uh, you know, and have been through so much. I think the thing for me is like, uh, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid. I was born in Grand Haven, but I lived in Florida for 10 years, a couple different cities and back to Grand Haven as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I moved back when I was like seventh, eighth grade. That's not an easy time to move a teen, like a 13 mm-hmm. year thirteen-year-old kid, um, mom, I love you. Thank you for raising me. <laughs> <laughs> I know we had our moments in my teen years, but who hasn't? So, in reality, like we've all, we everyone has a different, um, a different grind. You know, a different story they've had to push through to get to where they are. And um, for me, like I've been here seven and a half years. I definitely consider it home. Uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Flint's my my spot, man. And I think that uh, that's what so many people feel. They feel that pride. And, and I've honestly never been somewhere where like, like I went, uh, I was on a flight uh, beginning of the year before kind of all this shakedown happened. And I f- had to fly in through North Carolina to get to Kentucky. And, in, and I got off the plane in North Carolina and I saw a guy with a, sh- a sweatshirt that said bedrock. And I immediately knew that guy was from Flint or had a connection. So mm-hmm. I walked up to him, don't know the guy from Wednesday. And I was like, bedrock, like Flint, like Flint, Michigan. He's like, you know it. And I was like, 810, baby, let's go. And it's, it was like a quick little moment, high five and whatever. made Both of our days, like infinitely better. And, and people wear it on their sleeve, their shirt, whatever you want to call it. They, they're proud uh, to be from Flint and to live this story. Um, and uh, it really is, it's it such a bad rep. Uh, and that's why I have such a heart for this city is like, man, I'm not one. I'm a fan of the underdog. And if you don't, if you aren't betting on Flint, you're not making good bets. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like the way that I talk with everybody here, uh, I'm just very open. I'm an open book. I talk about like the goods and the bads of my life right alongside anybody else while I'm interviewing them and everything else. I want to make people feel comfortable. I want people to know that I'm real. I don't want people to think, you know, I remember during the, especially during the height of the water crisis, Um, people, there was a, uh, especially when national media was starting to pour in and it was that people would wonder where you're from and if you even care. And uh, there was no doubt in anybody's mind that I do. And I'm from here, you know, and I was able to say, I live in Flint. I know what's going on because I'm dealing with it. You know,
2: Yep. number one, Jake, the spirit of Flint that you speak of is totally just embedded in all the work you do it just comes out of the work that you do. And, you know, people, I work side by side with you for a long time. And I will just say this, Eric, at the end of this podcast, you and other listeners probably now are not surprised that a total stranger, hugged hug Jake made today, <laughs> right, at this, the scene of a breaking news story because his passion, not just for his work, but for people. And every major story we do because the people in the editor's ranks know that Jake May is going to raise his hand and say, I want to get out and show the people. I want to show the faces. I want to show the circumstances they're in. I want to get inside the houses. I want to find and show the people who are going through whatever thing we're going through. And coronavirus is no different. Jake, uh, total credit to our craft and total credit to Live and to, like I said, your co-workers. Uh, um, and I really appreciate you joining us today to talk about your experiences, not just now on the coronavirus, but what drives you to be the journalist that you are?
1: Well, thank you. I want to add one more thing real quick, um, based off of just talking about cities generally. Something that I've done my entire time here and will do for the rest of my life uh, is, I call it the dual realities of Flint, but it technically could be for any city. So I challenge every listener to think of it this way. There are two realities in any city that you live in. There's the perception and there's the existence. So with the perception, it's how people view your city without having ever visited it. What's its reputation? What is it known for? What are the things people drum up when they hear Flint or Grand Haven, Grand Rapids, uh, Ann Arbor? Has that changed over time? Do those negative stereotypes of your city still exist? Are they actual realities? I would say some of that can be true here in Flint, you know, there's still going to be crime. There's, we're still dealing with the water crisis. We're still dealing with some of these negative things that are going on in the world. So yes, I will cover those with as much heart as I will cover the next, which is existence, which is why we choose to live in these places. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's so important. And that to me is really the core of what we need to do is not just take things at face value, but really get down and get, and down and dirty, I guess is what I'm going to say. But get down in the gritty nitty gritty of everything. Talk to people and really understand what's important to them, and, and find a way to uh, to share the love of where you're at as well. And and like we do in Flint, wear it on your shoulder, man. If you're out in North Carolina, you're in Kentucky, you're in California. I don't care if you go to you know Timbuktu, you name the country you're traveling to. I hope that you like if you're wearing a Detroit hat, rep it proud. Someone will see that and they're going to think. Man, I'm really happy that guy's like I saw somebody, you know, I can tell you so many stories of people you see randomly in airports around the world. And you're going to know they're from Michigan by one little thing and rep your state, rep your city, like show people and explain to people why it's such a great place. Mm -hmm. Because that's the thing I think it's not just a journalistic thing. That's just being human. And that's being proud of where you live. And I think so many people are. I just think too often we're we don't talk about it publicly or out with, you know, if you're out and about, if you're on a vacation, I hope it comes up. I hope it comes up in some form of conversation with like a waiter at another, at a, at a bar you've never been to, you know, in a different city, even if it's within Michigan, that's cool. I want to learn something. I love learning about other cities a lot through the eyes of those that love them.
0: Jake, you are
2: an absolute joy, my friend. This was awesome. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate it, Jake. And Eric, thank you, Eric. And Eric, I just want to make a point here. Uh, anyone who's going down live now, or whether it's on the the computer or their phone, the apps, whatever, or seeing appeals uh, for people to support us with digital subscriptions. Uh, Those subscriptions support this kind of work. And of course, Jake kicked the conversation off talking about this unprecedented time we're in. And it's not just unprecedented historically from a journalistic standpoint, but also the pressures it's putting on businesses, economic pressures, to maintain the kind of work that they do. I believe, and I think even, you know, we're, we're an essential business under the executive orders because the news is an important part of utility for people's lives to make decisions, informed decisions, and never is that more true. So to the people listening and people out there who support MLive, uh, I would just appeal to you to take the opportunity to look into the subscription offers that, that are available. Every story on our site, will have a link where you can look and and decide whether you want to su- su- support the journalists like Jake who are doing this great work.
0: Awesome. And you can get all of that stuff in the show notes. There'll be the link to the subscriptions and the links to all of uh, Jake's stories that he's been talking about. So you, if you're listening to this and going, I want to see that truck or I want to see the Flint water crisis stuff, I will put all of that stuff in the show notes. Jake, once again, man, this was awesome. Thank you so much for being on episode number two.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you both.
0: John, have an awesome week, my friend. Catch up with you next week, Eric. Take care now. Thanks for checking out episode two of Behind the Headlines. If you like what you're hearing, you could do us a couple of important things. If you're listening on iTunes, if you could rate this and leave a review, that would be awesome. And if you're on Spotify, you could subscribe. That would also be awesome. And wherever you're checking this out, if you like the episodes that you're hearing, share them. It helps other people check out our podcast. We will catch you next week. And until then, you can check out all the stories you've heard on this podcast and all the other Behind the Headlines podcasts
1: at MLive.com com